Welcome to Intentionally Living for Christ. My name is Alyssa Dunker, and I've created this four-week Bible study to help us consider how to live for and please Christ in our day-to-day living. I invite you to join me, and we'll be praying for you as we go through this process together. A decade ago, I took a class called Intentional Living. Finding it helpful, I adapted some of the material for a group of women from Faith Church. I loved coaching other women to consider how God had shaped them and how to write down plans and dream big dreams. Think back 10 years ago. How old were you? What were the facts about your life? Do you have similar circumstances today? I definitely don't. 10 years ago, I was still brushing my daughter's hair in the morning and reviewing math facts in the afternoon. Now both of my children are young adults and out of the house. A lot of life has happened in almost 3,650 days. As a younger woman, I was more concerned with what I could accomplish for Christ than I am now. As God has been busy constructing my life during these 10 years, I confess I have failed to achieve many goals. I have also come to view intentionality differently. While I still respect long-term planning, I want to focus our time talking about Christ and the privilege we have to please Him and become like Him. I've become convinced that if those are our desires, we will intentionally live for Christ. Let's start this journey together by looking at how our future is designed to inform how we live today. We spend too much time thinking about our past and not enough time remembering our future. It may sound like an oxymoron, remembering what hasn't happened, but learning to think about what's going to happen to us while we are in the mess of our present circumstances, well, that is a key to intentional living. I'm not sure what you're doing right now, but if you are able, I would love for you to get out your Bible, something to write with, and your notes or a notebook. We will spend our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. So I want to back up a bit and set the scene. It is 50 AD, about 20 years ago, Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Currently, the Apostle Paul is traveling around the Roman world, sharing the good news about Jesus, starting churches, and getting persecuted just about everywhere he goes. Paul settles in Corinth, a large city in Greece. Things go well, and a year and a half later, he moves on and leaves behind a network of churches. A bit of time goes by, and Paul gets some awful news. The Corinthian church is tearing apart. They're having stupid arguments over which leader is best. They're approving of horrible sexual sin among professing Christians, and they're thinking about how superior they are to Paul. In response to this heart-wrenching news, Paul writes them a letter. We still have it today, and that is 1 Corinthians. Then Paul gets further bad news, so he writes a strongly worded letter to them, hoping for change. We don't have a copy of that letter, but in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, we do have internal evidence that it existed. Paul is having this back-and-forth communication when he arrives in the town of Troas in modern-day Turkey. He's feeling anxiety as he waits for Titus, his co-worker, and go-between message carrier, to return with more news from this church. At last, Titus finds the apostle and tells Paul the Corinthians still care about him. But Paul learns other things as well. So, 
he writes to the Corinthians a third time. This letter is in our Bibles, entitled 2 Corinthians. In it, we learn that Paul has enemies who have accused him of selfishly using ministry to make money. Some fake apostles had come to town, and they are apparently more eloquent than Paul. They are also not suffering like Paul, which is attractive to the Corinthians, who are culturally pretty shallow. Paul is an embarrassment to them. So we find in 2 Corinthians, Paul often defending his apostleship. But he, he is doing this not to be arrogant, but to protect the church. If they ditch Paul, there is a good chance they may also dump the true gospel. With this background in mind, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-15. to I admit to you that the verses I have chosen are generally not grouped together, but over the next two weeks, I hope you'll understand my decision to break things off where I have. Let me read chapter 5, verses 1 to 4 in the ESV. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we, we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. My husband took our son on a Boy Scout camping trip. Our daughter was seven and was disappointed that she couldn't join them. In my city girl brilliance, I thought, I can fix this. I rented a camping site and took my youngest child to buy a tent. In the middle of July, this was not a financially wise move, but we left the store with an eight-person tent and headed out on a girl's adventure. Setting up that beast of a tent definitely challenged the fun factor, but by dinner time, it was clear I was not a good camping partner. It took me an hour to start a fire. Seven-year-olds don't appreciate this. In the morning, we were, we were both eager to pull the tent down, get away from the fire ants, and head back to a real house. When I think of camping, I don't look in the mirror and see the tent that I'm wearing. Do you? And I'm not talking about a big baggy dress. According to scripture, my physical body is a tent. And one day, this earthly home of mine will be destroyed. Paul uses a descriptive word for this destruction. He says our tent will be pulled down. At the end of our lives, our tent home will be loosened and lowered, and the pegs will be pulled out of the ground. Paul's point is not to freak us out and tell us, hey, you, you're not going to live forever. And instead, he's contrasting the temporal nature of this life with the eternal, never-ending life to come. His point isn't to get us to fear death, but to say to us, you who are in Christ, your future is secure. God has taken care of it. When I was younger, I wrongly thought that since verse 1 says God is making us a building, a house not built by human hands, that everyone in heaven has their own house. But that's not what Paul is saying. Just as I don't literally live in a tent now, I won't literally house my soul in a house built by God. But one day, 
all who are in Christ will find their soul filling out a beautiful, non-aging, resurrected body. We will exchange the tent for the house. The temporary will be replaced by the permanent. But meanwhile, tense life is hard life. We groan, we suffer, we get confused. We think the things that really aren't important are the most important. And the things that really matter, ah, do I really have to do those things? Most of us probably aren't longing for our permanent heavenly body. We'd rather push that off as long as possible. Paul was never one to try to get out of this life early. He knew there was great value for him being on earth, but he kept that balanced by the unseen reality that was waiting for him, and he knew it was much, much better than what he had on this dusty planet. Have you ever longed for your resurrected body? And not just because the one you have right now is a bit broken, but because your soul was designed for an eternal world? Have you become too comfortable in your tent? Do you try to make your tent look younger? Oh God, show us that we are camping. Give us a longing for heaven. One day, all that is immortal in us will be swallowed up by life. I love this phrase. I would expect death to swallow things, not life. But here, life is the victor. Death will be overwhelmed, devoured, consumed by life. The heavenly outfit you will wear is immortality. But how often do we think about this? If being swallowed by life is something we fear or just don't think about, we will work at building our kingdoms in this present world. But if we carve out a place in our heart that says, Christ has purchased a home for us that is more real than anything we can currently see, it will change how we live. Verse 5 says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God has prepared us. God has fitted us. God has fashioned us. For what? For the mortal to be swallowed up by life. We are talking about the complete transformation of the perishable to the imperishable. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our preparation? The Spirit is our guarantee that we have victory over death. Paul wrote in Greek, and the word he used that we translate as guarantee is a specialized word that was used to represent earnest money. It was the security put down to guarantee the buyer will pay the whole amount in the future. If the buyer were to back out, they would forfeit all their earnest money. In modern Greek, the word means an engagement ring, that special piece of jewelry that says there is a promise that a lifetime commitment is coming. When I was in college, my life changed when I heard a conference speaker teach from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. It's a lot like this passage in 2 Corinthians. God gives all those who believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Imagine, God gives an earnest money promise, ensuring that one day he will claim people like us as his own inheritance. 20-year-old me was given the security to know that I would be God's forever 
because I had been given the Holy Spirit. The text implies that if God isn't faithful to his promise, we get to keep his spirit. Because God is faithful, he will remain faithful to those to whom he has given his precious guarantee. If the Spirit of God has done anything to transform you up until now, hold on to hope. Complete transformation is coming. In the meantime, we will continue to groan on this earth, but the groaning also indicates a longing for what we are made for, an anticipation of immortality and wholeness. God has prepared us for this by giving us his Spirit. Our groaning indicates our dissatisfaction with this very long camping trip. The text continues. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I have lived most nine of the last ten years in a foreign country. So Paul has my attention here. I know what it's like to go through passport control and instantly be at home or away. And it's no accident that I can relate to these words. The literal translation for being at home is to be among one's own people and not a foreigner. The translation of the phrase being away is to leave your own country and go abroad as a foreigner. Paul is saying that while we are in our earthly tents, we are at home in them. We are among our own people in these tent communities and heaven is foreign to us. Maybe that's why we aren't so excited about what we tend to call the afterlife. It's unknown. But this is why we walk by faith and not by sight. I can't see heaven, but the groaning I have because this world isn't right, the testimony of the scripture and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life tell me to trust there is another home that is far better than this one. One day, When we become foreigners to our own tent bodies, we will be at home with the Lord, among our own people, in a permanent and eternal community. We will be citizens of that place. We will be home. So, no matter what, whether we are on this earth or in heaven, at home or away, we remain with one goal, one purpose, one aim, and that is to please Jesus. When my son was nearly 11, he discovered he was faster and almost stronger than me, which thoroughly delighted him. I remember the day he invented a new game. He gathered every soccer ball, every baseball, every Nerf ball, every football, and piled them outside, then yelled in the house, Hey, Mom, come outside and throw these balls at me. What? You want me to do what? He gave me the instructions again and, dumbfounded, I started with the Nerf balls that wouldn't hurt if I hit him in the head, but he adamantly requested I throw them all, again and again, until my arm gave out. The whole time, he would jump, duck, and somersault out of the way of my throw. Even though my aim was terrible, 
He loved this game. My son was pleased because my focus was on him. Likewise, God wants our focus. He wants us to aim our attention at him. This is the heart of intentional living. Who or what am I intentionally living for? Is my aim to please Jesus or is it something lesser? Do I ultimately desire to please Jesus or my boss, my children, my roommate, my spouse, my friends, myself? And what is one benefit of living our lives to please Jesus? The passage says that we will have to give him an account of how we lived and we will receive what is due us. Living for him will be judged positively. Living for our own kingdoms, not so much. Paul describes this future scene using a familiar landmark found in many Roman cities. It was called the Bema Seat. It was a raised platform where the judge or leader would sit and preside over official matters. There is a Bema Seat in Corinth. So when the Corinthian Christians read that they will all have to appear before the judgment seat, the Bema Seat of Christ, they understood this image. Now, I don't want to freak anyone out. It will be a privilege to go before the Bema Seat of Christ. It will be a privilege because only those who belong to Christ have such an opportunity. It will be an assessment of our lives and not a determination of eternal destiny. As I've been studying this passage, at first, I felt nervous about being judged. And then something shifted in my thinking. One day, the eternal king who sacrificed himself for me will grant me the opportunity to be rightly judged for the first time. In this life, we get judged a lot. And if we're honest, we do our own share of judging. And most of it isn't very fair. No human can fully take into account the unseen motivations of the heart. Without this, our judgment is inadequate. Paul knew he would be judged by Christ, and it freed him. Let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-5 to 5 from the NIV. Paul tells the Corinthian church, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul knew that the Lord would judge him. He didn't need to fear anyone's opinion not even his own opinion of himself. He wouldn't even condemn himself. I mean, how many times do we do that every day? Paul was saying that because he would be judged by Jesus, he could think about other people's opinions and his own opinion a whole lot less and think a lot more about aiming to please the one who actually deserves it. Paul tells us to live by faith and not by sight. We can't see that Jesus will be there ready to judge our lives, but that day will come. And when it does, I want to be overcome with the desire to run up to that judge and joyfully throw myself down in front of him because at that moment, he will be cleansing me from all the ways I failed and blessing me for all the times I aimed to please him. 
it will be a glorious and very good day. How could living with this day in mind, this day of fair and proper judgment, create intentionality in you now? Let's read verses 11 to 12. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul had fear of the Lord. He knew God was approachable, but yet way bigger and way holier than him. This healthy fear moved Paul to share the gospel with others. Just a few years before, the Corinthians were people who had not been persuaded that Jesus was Lord. But when he arrived in their city, he commended himself to them, which was basically the first century cultural way of introducing oneself. For Paul, to commend himself again to the Corinthians was akin to reintroducing himself, which would be insulting since he planted their church. They knew who he was. But because they were treating him disrespectfully and wanting to associate with fake apostles who were not being persecuted, he reminded them in chapter 3 that they were his letter of commendation. They had been far from God. He shared the gospel with them. They were persuaded, and now they were God's friends. Paul is confident that if only they knew him as God saw him, they would listen to him and know that he was for them. Then they would stop being fooled by the fake apostles whose outward appearance didn't match their heart's motivation. Like the Corinthians, we can take pride in appearances, and we can be fooled by them. We can be deceived by what looks good on the outside, and this influences how we live. We can quickly give up intentionally living for the day that we will stand before the just and gracious judge and instead make ourselves the judge of others. Let's read verses 13 to 15. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." The love of Christ keeps Paul from living for himself. Because Jesus Christ died for everyone, all those who have responded to him have a high calling. They are called to live for Christ. It's that simple. Jesus gave his life so that we can have life, and all we are asked to do in exchange is live our lives for him. Now, you and I both know it's not simple to do. Living for Christ and not for myself requires walking by faith. It requires dying to my version of what is best for me. There is no formula for how to do this well because it's based on a relationship. There are principles, of course. We read his word to find out what pleases him. We examine our hearts, motivations. We seek forgiveness. We slowly transform as we hopefully look less like our old selves and more like Jesus. What is the connection between aiming to please the Lord and being judged by him and this merciful statement that he died for us so that we might no longer live self-focused lives? Only living for him will produce a favorable judgment. It is the times when we live for ourselves, when our aim, 
our goal isn't to please Christ, but to do what pleases ourselves, that we will be judged as coming up short. Paul actually calls it evil. But when our hearts are turned toward pleasing Christ, when we lay aside our own agendas and live for him, there we will find life. We live intentionally for Christ when we make it our aim to please him, knowing that he will rightly judge our lives. So what are you facing today? How does this truth about what will happen in your eternal future affect your motivations, your emotions, your thoughts, and your actions right now? Living by faith and not by sight is impossible without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit has already prepared us for eternity. The same Holy Spirit can give you eyes to see your current situation from the perspective of your future. If you are listening and aren't sure of your eternal future or want to know more about living for Christ, please reach out to someone you trust, to your small group facilitator, or you can contact me at reachtanzania at yahoo.com. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see our certain future and by faith throw all of our efforts at pleasing you, living for you and not for ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week when we consider how to intentionally live for Christ when we experience disappointment and suffering.